Well, we've got a real treat for you. We've got Dr. Ryan Cole, who's a pathologist trained at the Mayo Clinic, who's been quite vocal about calling out. Well, we've got a real treat for you. We've got Dr. Ryan Cole, who's a pathologist trained at the Mayo Clinic, who's been quite vocal about calling out the damage and the danger that these COVID jams are doing. We're going to dive deep today in many of the details that are going to fascinate you and may not have heard previously. So you're going to really enjoy this conversation about why. If you've had a jab, not a good thing, but the most important rule is never, never, never get another jab because it only gets worse. And we're going to want to avoid the complications that we're going to discuss in this fascinating interview. My big concern came very early when they started talking warp speed. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't vaccinate against coronaviruses. This family of viruses is not amenable to vaccination based on mutation rates. So my concern was very high early on. One of the important findings I've uh, heard from many of these clinicians is many of their patients who have been cancer-free for three, four, five years, their PET scan looks great, no detectable disease. After that second or third shot, all of a sudden there's stage four disease like wildfire. And this goes back to immune suppressive mechanisms, the damage that the persistent spike and the persistent modified RNA cause. So. Aggressive cancers very quickly are one thing we're seeing because it's a dose-dependent poisoning curve in terms of the more spike you have circulating, the worse your immune system seems to be doing. So the number one thing is don't get another shot. Even Walgreens came out a couple of weeks ago and showed their data. Look, individuals that got shots are getting COVID at higher rates. Even the mainstream media where they said, hey, it's looking like the boosters are a bad idea because it's immune suppressing people. I'm like, yay, we're finally making some progress and getting traction in the mainstream where at least the narrative is cracking. There's a crack in the dam and it's starting to leak and hopefully it'll fl- rush forward and people go, whoa, this was a bad idea. Let's stop this chaos. I think going forward, as as people are starting to wake up and part of this narrative is cracking, let's come back together. Let's communicate. Let's be kind. Let's let's help each other get back to more of a, a loving, peaceful, communicative society. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Ryan Cole, who is one of the thought leaders and uh, people on the front line with respect to opposing the fraud of the COVID narrative. So um, we're delighted to have him today. And his, his background, I, I try for backgrounds, I try to summarize it to two sentences because you know, most of the people I talk to, including me, uh, have backgrounds that are pages long. So we like to highlight, highlight the, the most important ones. And, and for Dr. Cole, it would be that he is well-trained as a pathologist. He, he's a graduate of the Mayo Clinic program and has done some postgraduate training, I think his specialties in immunology and virology, which gives him special expertise to give his insights on this in this area. And then additionally, which may be one of the most important criteria, not criteria, but characteristics, is that he has his own business. In 2004, he started his own company, which gives him the freedom and the flexibility, unlike many, maybe probably most, and he can comment on this directly, of the other academic um, 
uh, pathologists or uh, people in leadership who are employed, and if they said a fraction of what Dr. Cole would say, they would lose their job. You know, and most choose not to lose their job. So he's gotten the freedom, the flexibility to do that because he's self-employed. Like me, I'm self-employed, so I'm I'm in the same boat. I started started my medical practice, but really shifted over to the website 25 years ago. So uh, I'm really excited to discuss some of uh, what Dr. Cole has been finding and expanding. And I've got a bunch of good questions for him. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. It's an honor to be here with you, Dr. Mercola. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, and what I neglected to mention, this is the first time I've uh, met Dr. Cole, and uh, I guess he has been, he knows of me, he's been following some of my health recommendations earlier, so he's really fit. He's committed to a uh, healthy lifestyle, uh, and uh, he practiced, you know, he basically, uh, obviously he's lean and fit, and he, he doesn't need to do resistance training because he has a 25 acre, that's a lot of acres, folks, organic farm and uh he has a lumber mill on that, so he's a lumberjack of sorts, so he gets a lot of good work, workouts. So, uh, all right, well, let's go into, actually, I want to, I'm going to ask you a question right off the bat, which I should have asked you before the record button, but I, I'm, you know, you, you're one of the thought leaders for sure in this, and I'm just curious, and there is no right or wrong answer in this, but then you can answer this later, as to who you think just, I just want you to reflect on it as we're talking. Are the top 10 people that you would put in your group with respect to those who understand this and are brave and courageous and sharing information out there in the front line doing it? So, Because you're a bit better networked than me. You, you're, you're in the travel circuit. I'm not. And uh, I'd just be curious to get your insights on that. So probably let, well, I'll let you think on it because <laughs> we'll answer that later. Um, so I guess we could probably start with your journey, as a, you know, given your background. Maybe walk us through how, when you first became aware of this and decided to take a stand, and was there any uh, hesitation or uh, concern about uh, taking the, out, the outspoken positions that you have? You know, it really, honestly, Dr. Mercola began from the beginning. So when they announced that there was uh, a pandemic, when they, the WHO finally said, well, looks like it's a, it's a pandemic after we were watching what was happening in China, my, my hackles went up right away. Uh, to your point, uh, I'm an anatomic clinical pathologist, subspecialty is uh, skin pathology. I did PhD work in immunology. I was very aware of SARS-CoV-1. I had studied that uh, very well when I was at Mayo and in training and did a refresher when all of these announcements were made. I had studied MERS. And, and my big concern came very early when they started talking warp speed. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't vaccinate against coronaviruses. This family of viruses is not amenable to vaccination based on mutation rates. So my concern was very high early on. And we ramped up, uh, you know, testing early on here in the laboratory, set up a drive-through testing center. And every patient that would come along would say, what can I do? What can I do? Well, well, let, me, let me stop you there for a moment. If I yeah, yeah, go ahead. I'm just curious, on the testing center that you set up, I'm assuming that's a PCR test, and if that is the case, what was the cycle threshold that you used? Uh, okay, so I, I got criticized in the media for this because the companies that got their 
emergency authorizations, they wanted to run cycles to 40. And I said, no, you don't, you don't run cycles to 40. So I looked early on at the data out of Israel, Dr. Schwartz and whatnot. They said, look, we can culture the virus up to cycle 33. Okay, so, so, and then the other problem too, everybody. Well, you used 33 or did you go even lower? We went, well, no, we went 35, but we went ahead, we went ahead and said, look, uh, presumptive positive. And, and the one thing I tried to teach from early on is, a spot PCR test means nothing. If you have a patient that comes in and their cycle was 33, but a week later or two days later, three days later, they're at 17, obviously they're going into a higher uh, viral copy and going into disease. And just the opposite. So you test a patient at cycle 14, 15, and a couple days later, they're up at 28 or 32, you know they're going out of disease based on semi-quantitation of viral load. So really, a single PCR test, because we know patients will test 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks for particle. So I tried to educate early on with a lot of my clinicians, look, a single PCR, it may give you an indication if a patient's symptomatic. But this whole concept of asymptomatic testing, you know, post-exposure and getting a 33 and then a, then a 17 or a 20 or whatever a couple of days later, that's meaningful. So I was trying to educate early on from a lab point of view, look, testing can be useful if you use it properly. And so much of our world has used it improperly. And to your point, the ridiculousness of cycling at 40 and 45 at labs around the world has been meaningless and about 98% false positive in those cases. So so as much uh, demeaning and defamation as I've received in the media for speaking out, I've tried to educate. And that's that's the key in medicine. Doctor obviously means teacher in Latin, and it's been our job to teach. So, yeah, we did testing, but at the same time, every single patient, and I personally was face-to-face with thousands upon thousands of patients, and they're like, well, they were panicked. I understand it was supposedly novel, and they're trying to figure out, well, what can I do? I said, hey, what's your vitamin D level? Uh, how are you sleeping? What kind of what kind of food are you putting into your body? What's your inflammatory state? And then we, uh, a lot of us learned early on before it became an evil word, knew about hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic and the studies from the NIH in 2005 that had shown chloroquine's work against uh, SARS viruses. So um, I would I would give that. A, do you know what the pair of mo- do you know what the pair of molecule is of hydroxy hydroxychloroquine? The derived from what is what the molecule is derived from? Well, I know you can derive it from methylene blue. Anything that's it. It's methylene yeah. blue. Pair molecule. Yeah. 18, 1876, they first figured. It. Then it went to quinine, and then chloroquine, then chloroquine, yep. and hydroxychloroquine. Isn't that amazing? And, and methylene blue, ironically, is one of the stains we use traditionally. Do you, do you still use it as a stain in the lab? Um, uh, on frozen sections, we'll use it every now and then. At the Mayo Clinic, that was predominantly what we used in our surgical laboratories was methylene blue. Um, but yeah, it's 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 amazing to have those those precursor molecules in in what's a dye. And historically, it's fascinating because really before the era of antibiotics, the Germans were researching dyes as antimicrobials. So it has a yeah. fascinating history. Yeah, Paul Ehrlich in 1890, I think, wrote the first paper as a methylene blue for an antimalarial. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because it's in Valeria's parasite, and most of the ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine clearly uh, are targeting parasite diseases. So I have not had the opportunity to use methylene blue because I only recently became aware of it. And but I wouldn't have hesitate to use uh, 100 milligrams a day if I had the chance to personally and with friends. But you know, I just want to insert one comment because most people have a 
maybe and and best to determine is an inaccurate perception of a pathologist, which you are. Uh, they think that you're basically looking at tissue samples and biopsies, and it, well, it's a large part of the job. Another part of it is that you are, which refers uh, to the uh, your testing component, because almost most people don't know that the head of every major clinical lab is a pathologist. Isn't isn't that correct? That's correct. We're the quality control of medicine, so I like to point out that the pathologist is the most important doctor that you never meet, that you always hope is right. So we look at patterns in medicine, and, and that was the interesting thing just even over these two years. What were the shifts in patterns from infected individuals and people that were having long-haul symptoms? And then after the rollout of the genetic shots, what were the, the side effects there? So the pathologist... We're, we're constantly looking at patterns, be it under the microscope or be it in lab data. So we're looking at those blood reports. We're looking at what's out of range on blo uh, blood reports. We're looking at microbiology. We're looking at molecular bi biology. We're looking at cultures. We're looking at pap smears. We're looking across the board at, to your point, those clinical parameters in addition to tissue biopsies. And so those tissue biopsies certainly are bread and butter of, of the daily flow of the office here. But at the same time, my uh, busy technical staff, I have 70 employees. If there's a blood smear that looks unusual, they bring it to me. If there's some parameters on a test that look widely out of range, they bring it to me. And I call and talk to the clinician, literally that doctor to the doctor. So we uh, have a consultation practice with the clinicians so that they can help I can help them understand what's happening with their patient, and then they can make those clinical decisions going forward. So of those 70 employees, I'm curious as to how many of them are pathologists like yourself. Uh, I have one associate pathologist, and then I have uh, multiple master's trained um, laboratory technicians, many bachelor's trained lab, uh, lab technicians. So there are two pathologists in the practice right now. And uh, Do Dr. Mori has been a, a godsend, I'll tell you, because as yeah, I, <laughs> you couldn't travel without him. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. No, he's, he's a wonderful young associate. And he's also a triple boarded pathologist. So he's he's very well trained as well. And um, oh, so a good young that, well, what is the status of uh, your certifications because of your uh, stance against COVID that some, some of the credentialing organizations that you're board, boarded in have taken yeah. action against you. This, yeah, this, is, this has been really a, a, a battle, shall we say, um, for speaking science. It's a war. Hey, it's a war. Okay. It's a war. But yeah, I mean, I've been attacked. I have 12 state licenses. I've seen 500,000 patients diagnostically in my career through the microscope. So I have a long track record of, of diagnostics. I have not had a patient care complaint against me in 26 years of being a physician. I, I, I still don't. And, and this is what's fascinating. So of those 12 licenses, four were under attack, three are still under attack. Not a single patient care complaint. All the attacks against me have been political complaints to boards of medicine, which is not legal for them to do. Can, they you, disclose, can you disclose the states? Yeah, you bet. Uh, state of Washington, uh, I have one pending still in the state of Arizona. I think that one's finally fading and one in the state of Minnesota. And again, not wow. a single one of those complaints is from a patient. So These I'm surprised that California and New York, New York were part of <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't have a New York license, so I, oh, okay. did, <laughs> I, I did do part of my training at Columbia. Um, in, in dermatopathology, but thankfully, no, I don't have a complaint there. And, and California, I do have a license, and I've stayed 
quiet in the state of California, thankfully. Um, after this, maybe somebody will attack me politically. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and then, and then the, really the egregious thing was ex parte, without me being present, without even sending a certified letter, the um, College of American Pathologists removed my fellowship status, which is defamatory because I went back and found their complaint and looked at what they did. And I actually have a wonderful defamation lawsuit against them because everything they did was anti-scientific. They don't like what I'm but sharing. Is that even legal? I don't think it's, so. it's I like saying you graduated and completed training and, and then taking it back when you, you're certified by them. They can't I am. I, I, I'm a fellow of the, I was a fellow of their college. They removed that fellowship, which, again, I have a wonderful lawsuit against them. So they can either restore it now or just pay me a big check down the road, one or the other. That, thankfully, it doesn't seem to impair your ability to operate in your business and no, I'm still for yourself and your family. So I'm still well. I, I have lost half my business, to be quite honest. Oh, you because, have really? Oh, yeah. Because uh, I did not know that. A couple of the insurance companies, because of my quote unprofessional behavior for simply sharing science, and again, they'll attack the individual. They won't attack the science because they can't. And I, I always offer in any interview I do nationally, I say, look. You disagree with me? Wonderful. That's great. That's medicine. Why don't you invite me to coffee or lunch? Let's sit down, look at data together. If the data I have is incorrect, show me better data. And for two years now, it has been crickets in terms of anybody countering what I've been sharing. And so, literally, insurance companies have canceled me, which has inhibited my ability. And again, that's an, another long, dragged out lawsuit that's coming. And I had one of my best friends who I worked with for 12 years and done surgery with. He said, Well, I have too many patients complaining that you're in the media and controversial. And so, I don't want it to affect my business. So he withdrew his uh, business from me, uh, all, be all because of the defamation of the media. So mm -hmm. to tell the truth in this day and age is a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, sure is. So thank you for sharing the extent that you've been uh, vilified and discredited and how it's impacted you personally. So now we can probably jump into what you've been sharing that caused this <laughs> action against you. So uh, uh, there's so many places we can go to. Uh, I guess I'm particularly curious as your your take on the increase in the cancers, which you've talked about, and uh, especially if you can share the story of how the uh, whistleblower with the military came out and then they <laughs> froze the database and altered the data <laughs> to hide the reality. This is just crazy how they were hiding the increase in cancers because it was a pretty good database. I think it's the DMET. Yeah, it's one of the best databases in the world. So what happened um, for me, obviously during COVID, we saw some parameters change in blood tests. There was a concern about clotting. We saw some elevated clotting factors. We know that the early variants were pretty severe in terms of inducing clotting, which was a shame because the whole world should have been simply using anti-inflammatories and steroids and anti-clotting agents, and so many more people would have lived. Let you know, leave ivermectin hydroxy out of the picture. I, my colleague, Dr. Chetty in South Africa, was having phenomenal success with antihistamine steroids and anti-clotting agents and was doing wonderfully. Um, so anyway, the first year we saw... Uh, drops in white blood cell counts. We saw decreases in uh, certain subsets of T cells. So the first year that was that. But when the shots rolled out, things changed. And this is, at first I noticed a, a kind of an innocuous little bump that we see usually in kiddos. It's a, a little virus called molluscum contagiosum, little white, white bump. And usually by the time you're a tween or early teen, you've built immunity to that and you never get them again or rarely get them again. So after the shots rolled out, all of a sudden in 80-year-old, 70-year-old, 60 
60 year olds, 50 year olds, I started seeing literally a 20 fold increase in this little innocuous viral bump. And I thought, uh oh, this means they've lost immune memory. And what else is. Wait, where were you seeing those? How, what was the age group? That anywhere from 50 to 80. 50 to 80, you were seeing molluscum? Yeah, a lot of it. And that's. Wow. That, and, and I'll give Dr. Mori credit for that as well, because we're both looking at each other one day. Are you seeing more molluscum? I said, yes, I am. And he said, have you noticed the age group? And I said, I have. This is really odd. And so those subsets of T cells that keep viruses in check are very important for keeping cancer in check. And this is where immunology jumps into the picture. A lot of people don't know that there's an intimate connection between your immune response and your ability to, to inhibit cancers. Very critically important. And, and yeah, you bring up a great point. All of us have some atypical cells all day long, and we have our, our marines of our immune system is what I like to call them, our natural killer cells. They're on the front line circulating while you and I sit here right now. We have a, about 30 billion T cells circulating in our blood, many of which are killer cells and natural killer cells. And then our other innate cells are our macrophages, monocytes, and dendritic cells. Well, they're on that front line. They're shaking hands with every cell in your body all day long saying friend or foe, friend or foe. Oh gosh, this one has some mutations. It's now a foe. They'll poke a little hole in it, throw in a little enzyme called a granzyme, a hand grenade, blow up that cell and we're good. But what happened after these shots rolled out is many of those cell subsets started decreasing in number. And so the first cancer I saw as an uptick was cancers of the uterus, endometrial cancers. And usually I would see maybe two endometrial cancers a month. All of a sudden, uh, a few months after the rollout of the shots, I was seeing two or three a week. And mm -hmm. I thought, oh boy, this is concerning. And then another subspecialty area of focus for me is melanoma. And I started seeing melanomas not only in younger patients as the shots dropped down in age cohort, but they were thicker. And then the other fascinating thing was they're more aggressive in terms of how many dividing cells was present in each tumor. And I'm still seeing this. And, and then to your point, um, when we had a meeting in January uh, in Washington, D.C., the Defeat the Mandates March, we also had a subcommittee hearing with Senator Johnson. And at that subcommittee hearing, uh, there was a whistleblower that came forth with the Department of Defense Military Epidemiology Database, which is one of the most uh, pristine databases in the world because our military wants to know on a weekly basis what's happening in terms of threat assessment to the troops. Are we seeing more of this disease or that disease? Is there like a new toxic hydraulic fluid? Or, you know, they're looking for signal. They're trying to find signal in the health of the troops. Well, they noticed that there was a large uptick in visits for cancer. And it corroborated what I had been, been seeing statistically and then a week after this important hearing with Senator Johnson, the Department of Defense froze that database. And then a week later, the data was all changed. And that's what was really shocking. And, and I think this is basically fraud to the, the level of Watergate in terms of somebody behind the scenes and then the private company that actually manages that database um, they manipulated it. They, manipulated it. they absolutely manipulated it because... And, and the interesting thing is with time, people forget about it. Oh, right. they, they don't ever remember it, and they, their only risk of exposure is right at the time around the incident. 
Yeah, and we we won't we'll be like elephants. We won't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> we'll bring this forward because it's so critically important. And, and you know, I don't want people to be scared. So when you say you know there's an uptick in cancer, mm-hmm. so say say there's one per hundred thousand colon cancer in the population every year. So. Now, after the shots, let's say there's two or three per 100,000. Well, that's three out of 100,000 people. So that's not like a ton of people, but it's still a two, 300% increase. So I, yeah, it's, I, I, it's, it's the same issue that the, the drug companies use. They, can, they of course. confuse the people with relative and absolute risk. So we can use the... relative risk to warn people just like they use relatives to put to, to produce uh, fear porn correct to, to motivate people to their actions correct and then and then beyond that so as you know and and we've chatted about i've been traveling the the country and the world quite a bit trying to help in different legislatures trying to get different legislation passed i've been doing educational sessions with the global COVID summit around the world and wherever i go now i have doctors approach me and nurses as well saying look what you're saying we've been seeing so I was having a conversation with a chair of a large oncology department in Tallahassee about a month and change ago, and he said, I usually see an aggressive brain cancer in a young patient maybe every decade. After the boosters rolled out, he saw five astrocytomas, five aggressive brain cancers in one month. Then I'm in Jacksonville the next day having a conversation with a family doctor. He said, gosh, you know, it's strange. I usually see a kidney cancer in a young patient every decade or so. I've seen five in the last month. Then I was in the UK a couple weeks ago. I had a doctor from Ireland who's been practicing family doc GP, been out in the country for 36 years. And he said, I have seen more cancer in my young patients ever since the shots rolled out in the booster than I have ever seen in my entire career. Same thing, a nurse that works emergency department in the UK, not only the heart inflammation in young children, but cancers in young patients and aggressive leukemias. So everywhere I go, I have doctors confirming observationally. You know, if, if it's here or there, then it's anecdotal. Those anecdotal reports are 50 to 60 times, not two or three. That's 50 to 60 X. Correct. Correct. And that's when that's when it all adds up to being observational medicine, like we've done for eons in medicine. You observe something works or you observe something's happening. Now you have a legitimate finding. And and what frustrates me is really it would be very simple in for HHS and CMS to go into their database and reveal to the American population. Maybe we could do this through FOIA. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know you're laughing for the same reason I am. Um, But, I mean, it would be so simple to aggregate this data and look at the age groups by decile and and figure out, hey, look, there's an uptick here, there's an uptick here, there's an uptick here. Because it really took, you know, talking to Dr. Malone and a researcher out of Israel, it took a while to figure out the myocarditis signal because of how they were aggregating data. But once you look at the data properly, you can find those signals. I have no doubt I'm seeing it through the microscope. People will say, gosh, your your observation's anecdotal. I say, okay, I I see 40,000 biopsies a year personally. I noticed a change in pattern. But then I put it out there because I wanted to see, is anybody else seeing it? And you brought up a great point earlier, Dr. Merkel, and that's the fact that 
my colleagues are kind of stuck in these academic institutions. So I've seen them at, at some of these uh, national meetings, and I've had many of them approach me and say, hey, look, I'm seeing what you're saying. I can't say it because I'll get fired. Mm-hmm. And to that point, I've lost half my business for simply sharing science data and truth. And they're, they're even in that worst pickle where if they say anything, they're there's 100%. <laughs> yeah, 100% for them. But it, it's not that I'm the only pathologist seeing it. There are other pathologists corroborating what I'm seeing. They're just afraid to, to speak out. Okay, so um, you obviously have special advanced educational insights that allow you to make a re- rational or reasonable projection as to what this might mean in the future. Cancer as most people know watching this, is the number two closely following cause of death in the United States and, and most of the Western world. Um, but it's closely approaching, and many experts project that it will exceed heart disease in the future. Uh, interestingly, I think a large part of that is related to our dietary change, and I'm sure you would agree with that, because prior to 1900, I think the incidence of cancer was a half to 1%, and now it's 33% people dying from cancer. So, but that's a whole other discussion. But nevertheless, these these jabs have accelerated the process. So I'm wondering what your best guess is, and I'm not asking for quoted studies because I know the research isn't out. It's going to take years to figure this out. But if you could, you know, with your exposure, your experience and the stories that have been shared with you, what do you think the, the timeline's going to be before it gets out of control? Is it going to stabilize or is it just going to get much worse? That's a great question. And one of the important findings I've uh, heard from many of these clinicians is many of their patients who have been cancer-free mm-hmm. for three, four, five years, their PET scan looks great, no detectable disease. After that second or third shot, all of a sudden there's stage four disease like wildfire. And this goes back to immune suppressive mechanisms, the damage that the persistent spike and the persistent modified RNA cause. So aggressive cancers very quickly are one thing we're seeing. I think over time, I think the important thing is I'm not here to judge if you got a shot, didn't get a shot, just don't get another one. It's the wrong shot for the wrong protein for the wrong virus because the dose, it's a dose-dependent poisoning curve in terms of the more spike you have circulating, the worse your immune system seems to be doing. So the number one thing is don't get another shot because it is causing that immune suppression that's allowing those cancer mechanisms. I think over time, my concern based on the patterns and statistically, and again, I'm just looking into a crystal ball prognosticating, but I would say we're going to see a consistent two to threefold increase uh, in certain cancers, endometrials, breast cancers, um, cancers of the prostate cancers that are testicular or ovarian, uh, neurologic cancers. This spike has a propensity to cross the blood-brain barrier and invade neural tissues. We know what it does to mitochondrial activity in terms of inhibiting it, blocking it, ruining cytochrome uh, uh, C oxidase systems, decreasing ATP. Cancer is a hypoxic state when you don't have good cellular activity and cellular respiration and hypooxygenation. You end up with mechanisms that can induce more aggressive cancer. So I think at a minimum of two to three fold, I think we're going to continue to see it at least over the next year or two. 
I can only hope that the immune system can normalize and we come up with enough interventions and treatments that will reverse some of this, you know, what some people call spikeopathy or the, the different diseases that are being caused by this persistent spike. I don't know is the honest answer, but that would be my projection based on yeah, what yeah. I've seen. No, no one knows. Nobody knows, yeah. It's just, it's just an educated guess. So that's interesting to know. So more than likely, cancer will exceed heart disease in the relatively near future. I think so. Yeah, so I think yeah. so. But at the same time, to to your point, heart disease. We know that this this spike causes yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of clotting. I mean, here's here's some of the postmortem clots that are just giant, oh, jelly like. What's the longest one you've seen? Uh, about two feet. Oh, jeez. Wow. And and they're just thick, rubbery clots. And we know we've seen a lot of micro clotting with the. Uh, and these are all in the veins. Or there's some. Uh, well, I have some that are arterial as well, which is yeah. fascinating. You usually don't see a lot of arterial clots because of the pressure of the system, but uh, it's fascinating. But the majority are venous, yes. Um, but I've seen some arterial as well. So that makes me worried as well about heart disease because um, I don't know if you've looked at the data from Ed Dowd and some of the insurance. Oh, I love Ed. I, I probably should get him on my. The, Ed is great. I can connect you if need oh, to. Oh, definitely. Which, could you connect me? Because I'm so impressed with him. I'm yeah, sorry. he's a he's another courageous guy out there. He's, I mean, fortunately, like you, he's got an independent business, so he's relatively isolated from being uh, impacted by the, negatively yeah. from what he's saying. But he's really saying some things. I mean, he's saying things that literally, I'm surprised because it, it seems like they'd want to take him out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he's bringing things forward that are critically important, and that's the increase in all-cause mortality, especially in the young patient cohort, ages 18 to 64. Uh, it was One America out of Indiana that came forward. Their CEO said, look, we're seeing a 40% increase in death and disability claims, and it's not COVID. And it, the majority of which happened quarter three and four of 21 after the mandates rolled out. And so to your point about heart disease, a lot of that was cardiac death. We saw more strokes. And then after they came forward, um, additional insurance companies said, look, we're seeing anywhere from 30 to 50 percent increase in claims as well. So really, when the actuaries start seeing the number, they have they have no horse in the race. They're just observing. And, and I, you know, I say that as a pathologist, too. Look, it's I don't create a disease. I don't prevent a disease. I'm a reporter at the scene right. of the crash. My job is simply to report patterns, and then we can scientifically across the board confirm those data patterns. But these insurance companies and the all-cause death uh, is increased in those who have gotten two, three shots. And the more shots you get, again, it's a dose-dependent curve the more spike your body is making, the worse people tend to do over time. Even Walgreens came out uh, a couple of weeks ago and showed their data. Look, individuals that got shots are getting COVID at higher rates. Um, again, they, I, mean, I was surprised they released that. I mean, I, I, I don't. Yeah. I was actually shocked that, that they would let that out. I would have thought it wouldn't surprise. Even the mainstream media finally last week, I think it was Good Morning America, where they said, hey, it's looking like the boosters are a bad idea because it's immune suppressing people. I'm like, yay, we're finally making some progress and getting traction in the mainstream where at least the narrative is cracking. There's a crack in the dam and it's starting to leak and hopefully it'll fl rush forward and people go, whoa, this was a bad idea. Let's stop this chaos. But, so, but with it, trying to roll it out on kids of all things now. Yeah, well, let's hold off on that because okay. that's probably one of the most egregious yeah. evil <laughs> they're perpetuating this. And I, don't, I don't know if you know, I, was think, I think it was just two days ago, they, I think the White, the White House or the Biden administration has announced that they're going to 
approve it for under five June 21st. Yeah, and they've already started shipping, even though there's still some hearings coming up. Yeah, they don't mean anything. <laughs> I, oh, of course they don't. They violated every federal regulation there is under the auspices of an emergency that doesn't exist in the youth. And they're literally going to harm a generation. And it's really tragic. Yeah. So we'll, get, we'll touch back on that later. But with this increase in all-cause mortality, I'm wondering if you, your projection is that maybe cancer won't be number one because there's a parallel increase in the cardio, cardiac mortality, too. So do you think that they'll, they'll, they'll kind of parallel go up together and we'll have, you know, it, essentially that there won't be a difference because they're both going up simultaneously? I think so. I think we're going to see a simultaneous increase. And and the interesting thing, if you look at the studies from uh, Stanford, Dr. Rolkin and the journal Cell, we know that that modified RNA persists in lymph nodes for at least 60 days after the shot. Now, keep in mind, a messenger RNA, our, our cells are making messages all day long, so our, our cells can make proteins. A message usually lasts about 15 minutes to maybe a few hours, depending on how much protein a cell needs to make or cell membrane or whatever it's signaling for. Sure. The, these, yeah, short, brief period of time. These modified sequences are persisting at least two months. There's not a single study in the world that shows when the body stops producing spike protein or when this uh, modified RNA degrades altogether. Um, Dr. Burkhardt out of Germany, their autopsy series, they showed deposition of spike protein 128 days after the patient's last shot. And then uh, journal- still, pre still present, four months out. Still present, four months out. So to your point, in terms of these all causes, we know the spike is the inflammatory aspect of, of the virus, as well as our bodies are turned into a spike toxin factory. Our cells are made into a spike toxin factory. Studies out of the Salk Institute show that the spike is the cytotoxic uh, aspect of, of this entire condition. So we're giving a shot that makes the toxic part of the virus that's persisting. And that's why I think we're going to see this consistent elevation of different diseases related to uh, the spike, be it cardiac, be it strokes, be it chronic clotting conditions, uh, individuals dying from pulmonary emboli. And the, and the spike now is more toxic from the shot than from this, I, I call it cold vid than not COVID because Omicron in majority of people is much less thrombogenic because the S1 and the S2 don't split. The S1 really causes a lot of clotting. So what, yeah, for those who don't know, can you just describe the S1 and S2? Okay, yeah, so, so the spike itself has a couple of subunits. So the earlier variants, they have an S1 and an S2. It's kind of like a treble hook. Uh, if you like to go fishing. And then there's a little cleavage protein uh, that helps them split apart. So when the virus would bind to our cell at our ACE2 receptor that you hear about, the S2 would bind and the S1 would split off and go into circulation. Now that S1 instantly can cause proteins to clump and clot, even in the absence of platelets. Studies from Dr. Pretorius out of South Africa confirm that. With Omicron, there's less splitting of that S1 and S2. So Omicron, the reason it's been more of a cold, it doesn't bind in as our, our lungs as easily for one. And number two, it doesn't cause as much clotting. I'm not saying it doesn't cause clotting at all. It's still not a bad idea to consider uh, preventing clotting in, in patients with things as simple as aspirin. But um, that, that S1 of this spike, that, that S1 unit causes so much clotting that really 
we're giving a shot now that still has that mechanism where the S1 and the S2 do split, whereas we have a variant of the virus, Omicron, that's present that doesn't do that. So literally the shot is more dangerous than the virus now in terms of causing cardiac events, causing stroke events, causing pulmonary emboli. And so again, it's insanity to still have this product on the market, which really should have been pulled the first month on the market. You and I know that, and we can look at all that data, but it's, it's highly concerning that we have regulatory agencies allowing the most dangerous medical product ever released on humanity to persist in the marketplace. I want to get back to the mRNA because I think this is a really crucial point. I've interviewed Stephanie Senep a few times. I'm sure mm-hmm. you know who she is. I know her very well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, she's a great lady. And although she has no formal training, she's got an incredible brain and she's pretty much committed most of it to learning about this last few years and just published like a 40-page paper that would take a few hours to read. Uh, about it, the vaccine. Her projection is that that mRNA is going to be there a minimum of six months. And I know there's no studies to support this, but I'm just wondering if you've read her paper or since you know her personally, if you've discussed it in dialogue, then if you have any uh, comments on it, because I mean, and that's a, she thinks a minimum, and it could be years. I mean, and because of the, the substitute, a lot of people don't understand that spike proteins being made by their, their manufactured mRNA is, com- is com- not completely, but it's radically different from the spike protein being produced by SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, that's an important point, and she brings that up. So the their proteins fold differently, mm-hmm. and when they sequenced or, or engineered this sequence for these shots, they, they did something called putting it in a confirmationally open position. So they put this open hinge so thinking that the immune system would recognize it. So literally the spike isn't even the same as the viral spike, <laughs> which is fascinating. So we're trying to induce an immune response and we're literally doing a slightly different spike. But to her research, and, and this is what's very concerning, that spike protein can cause neurologic disease. And big concern mm-hmm. is the folding can lead to, and there was a paper that came out of France in preprints showing mad cow disease, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob, in a, a high, I think it's 26 patients. Um, she's talked about this in terms of being a prion, a folding disease. That spike folds in correctly because of the hinge they put in it and a couple of other hinge points. Also, there's inhibition of certain cell cycle pathway genes and proteins that are concerning G proteins. And then the other concern she brings up, too, is microRNA array um, modulation, which can also lead to cancer, like we talked about earlier. So, so she, wait, wait, can you break that down a little bit? Is this the microRNA that is an artifact of the manufacturing process? Correct. So these aren't pure products. And I think this is a very important point. So when Pfizer submitted vials to the European Medicines Agency to look at purity and any product you're going to release onto the market, you want it to be pure. Uh, 98, 99% pure. They're, they're, most products will have some impurities, but they were in the 50% range, which means you have a lot of fragmented <laughs> fragmented sequences of mRNA that don't have a stop or a start code on. They're not coding for what you think they're coding for. They're coding for other tinier, shorter fragments. Are those mutagenic? Probably. We don't know. Can those reverse transcribe into our own DNA? Studies out of Sweden and liver mm-hmm. cell lines show, yes, they can. Um, 
same thing the TGA in Australia looked at it and they said, huh, look, these are only about 60% pure. So the, the really important aspect here is these aren't pure products. Um, I have They're not a, pharmaceutical grade. Oh, oh my gosh, no. And I have a, a colleague that he's, he's brought an FDA drug to market. It took them seven years to dial the manufacturing process for his product. So to ramp these up at warp speed was completely illogical because you, you can't and, and, and at, at levels of billions of doses, there's there's no way any of these products are pure. You look Japan rejected what two million vials of Moderna because of debris and glass and gaskets and metal. Same thing that J and J, that manufacturing facility out of Baltimore, they threw millions upon millions of vials away. So really the question becomes is there anything pure coming out of any of these factories? Yeah. And then when they manufacture, they can't like spin and agitate these. And so you get all these lipids that collect at the top of these big vats. And, and so now you get batches that get out into the marketplace that are, some are hyper-concentrated and some are hypo. And so you don't know, it, it appears about 5% of the batches are responsible for about 80% of the harms because I know there have been groups that have been basically tracking how bad is my batch and they're trying to figure out because of the poor manufacturing, and, and it's not like they're making these all at one facility. They're making them yeah. really, really at so many places in so many ways, very impure, and those impurities can lead to all these other things we're talking about as well. Yeah, so it's not necessarily a conspiracy to target certain populations. It's just an artifact of the manufacturing process. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, I mean, there are there are some aspects of what that spike will bind to. Certain populations have higher levels of ACE two receptors than other populations. So, if you look at certain mutations naturally in populations, the virus did have a propensity to certain populations, whether that was designed or not. I'm not even going to speculate. Plain and simple fact: that's just genetics and biology. Some groups are just yeah. different than other groups of people. Yeah, I want to get back to this microRNA because it, it, it appears that it's a derivative of the original bastardized spike protein they tried to replicate. So if it's a derivative of that, it has the same components that are going to lead to its persistence, like the pseudouracil. It does. Yeah, so it's going to last for a long time. This is not something that's going to disappear in a short, brief time of minutes or hours. Correct. Yeah. Correct, and that's and that's the concern. So when we so in in normal RNA you have uridine, and in these, in order to stabilize it, they used a pseudouridine. And when Carrico and Weisman came up with this in the early two thousands, they made the observation: look, if we put pseudouridine in the sequence, it evades the immune system. Well. They said that thinking this was a good thing. Well, there's a reason 20 years later, there was never a successful mRNA product brought to market. There was a reason Moderna was zero for eight bringing a product to market because the persistence of these syn synthetic modified RNAs with the pseudouridyl that persists caused too many problems in the animal trials. It caused too much autoimmune disease. It caused too much mutation. And, and even Borla and Pfizer, Borla said to a scientist, why are we using an mRNA shot? We've only been working on this for two years. And, and literally the you know, CEO of Moderna a couple of years ago said, well, we have no guarantee that lipid nanoparticles will be safe in humanity. So we had this willy-nilly heads of companies saying, well, we're not sure this is a safe product. We have years of research, research showing that 
these fragments of modified RNA evade the immune system, suppress the immune system, allow viruses to wake up, allow cancers to take off. We, we knew from a research point of view that these were unsafe. And to your point now, now we have fractionated sequence of a modified RNA that doesn't break down, coding for things other than a complete spike protein. And who knows what those other little folded pieces are? Because when a protein is present, it always likes to combine with a sugar. So all of these end up really differently shaped. And the immune system is going to do one of two things and say, okay, that's an invader. I, I better make an immune response to that. It may blow up that cell. But at the same time, if some of these are shaped similarly enough to human cells, now they may say, huh, okay, that kind of looks like this cell surface marker on my thyroid or my pancreas or whatever. And now the immune system wants to attack your own cells because it's similar enough to your own tissue. And, and this is just an unmitigated immunologic disaster, not only in the near short term, but who knows in the long term. Based on the animal trials, we know there were problems, and we can only predict that that's going to happen in humanity. I want to be wrong, but from a, a basic immunology point of view, I don't think I am. Yeah, I would agree. Seems like you're spot on. I had a question, technical question, about the carrier uh, nanoliposome they're using, which is primarily composed of PEG, polyethylene glycol, and it, it itself is, is not the safest thing out there and should be avoided. But I'm wondering how long the PEG lasts. I mean, it's, its purpose and design is to get the messenger RNA into the tissues, and I think it's really effective at doing this. It's a very clever system. But does that uh, dissociate or get metabolized relatively quickly and just leave messenger RNA intact, or does it hang around for a long time? It appears to hang around for a while because in, in the Moderna studies, they made it glow. You usually uh, use a, a green uh, gene from fireflies and, and you can... Luciferase, right? Yeah, luciferase, right, right. And so then you can see where uh, it has biodistributed. And it intercalates into cell membrane because the goal is to fuse with cell membrane. And so they, they put multiple lipids together, two of which, if you look at the acuitous data, literally on these lipid nanoparticles, acuitous is out of Canada. They make, I think, about 40% of the world's lipid nanoparticles for research. But it says in, in their data sheets, it says for research purposes only, not for human consumption. So to your point, there are some very inflammatory lipids, several of which have never been used in humanity before. The polyethylene glycol, uh, another reason they put that in is it keeps uh, keeps the mRNA from degrading because you have to keep these supposedly at very cold temperatures, which they changed the criteria on that down the road as well. Another problem with polyethylene glycol, so the PEG-2000 that they use in these, uh, because of cosmetic products and other food products we've used over the years, about 70% of individuals already have antibodies against polyethylene glycol. When you see these acute anaphylactic reactions, and there have been thousands of people that have died acutely from these shots, it's because within the, so within minutes, right? Or within hours. minutes, yeah, within you know, minutes to a few hours, they're they're unfortunately gone, and that's because they're already allergic to polyethylene glycols. And so when we're using this very inflammatory lipid nanoparticle uh, combined with other lipids, and and they make it a positive charge, your cell mem membranes are made of fats. And, uh, and so that positive charge will fuse, and now it just melds into that membrane of your cell and then drops its mRNA inside. Um, 
it's, it's very inflammatory for one, but two, we don't know how long that's going to persist, probably months. Um, mm. Thankfully, the dose is small compared to the mass of your body, but it's still very... It, it, the problem with lipid nanoparticles, you probably heard me and some of my colleagues say, it's like garlic. It goes everywhere. So they advertise they're going to give you a shot in the arm that stays in the arm. No, this lipid goes into the circulation, can go to the bone marrow, to the brain. In fact, lipid nanoparticles were originally designed to carry chemotherapeutic agents across the blood-brain barrier into the brain. So we're literally putting a lipid with, with a spike toxin uh, inside of it that will cross the blood-brain barrier and literally replicate in brain cells as well, which is insane from a scientific point of view. Yeah. So this, it, here's, here's the, the, the problem. The lipid nanoparticle plus an mRNA really is the nuclear bomb. It's this platform that's never been proven before in humanity, never been proven safe. And now the pharmaceutical industries are working on 30 different shots, influenza, RSV, TB, HIV, et cetera, et cetera, thinking they have carte blanche. Look, we did it with this. We can do it with that. They don't have five or 10 years of human safety data at all. This is, a, it, yes, it's dangerous for, for COVID as a COVID shot. This gene-based shot is dangerous. But now they think they're going to do it going forward. So now next fall, you may hear, gosh, we have your new flu shot already. And it's a lipid nanoparticle plus a sequence. Oh, my gosh, no. Because that lipid nanoparticle is like garlic. It will diffuse and go anywhere. Somebody's cooking garlic in the kitchen with butter. Everybody in the house knows somebody's cooking garlic. It diffuses everywhere. This lipid nanoparticle goes to the ovary. It goes what to size the- is in the apple? Is it, it's under 100 nanometers, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Very, very, very. 40 or 20. Yeah. Um, I think even, yeah, some of them, they vary in size. Interestingly, I've looked at some under the microscope. Um, they're very small um, and they vary in size and some of them congeal and some of them stay tiny. Wow. But because of the fatty nature of them, uh, they will go to any cell in the body and they will carry their little mRNA and fractionated mRNA package to any cell in the body. And that's the biggest concern is yeah. is now it's turned any cell in your body to potentially a target. And this is an important paper that came out of uh, the European Journal of uh, Immunology just uh, about a month ago, Dr. Hageman. And there's a condition called antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. So what that means is that's that sequence gets into your cell, whichever cell in whichever part of your body, that cell now becomes the spike factory, and that spike is on the sur- surface of your cell. Now your natural killer cells that I talked about earlier say, huh, we better blow that cell up. So now, now because there's, there's that cell, uh, or that, I'm sorry, that spike on the surface, your immune system will destroy your own cells. And this, this is another one of the detrimental effects Which is of the term for autoimmune disease. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Self-attacking self. Uh huh. So, but the interesting thing, I mean, the nail liposome is dangerous, as you wisely described and articulated, but it doesn't multiply, which is the right. whole point of the messenger RNA fix. And I just want to emphasize because some people may not truly understand what mRNA does, but it's an instruction set targeting your cells and hijacking your cells to just to basically become a factory to produce these bastardized spike pro- toxic spike proteins and that may go on for a while so even though the, the the liposome or the nanoliposome has some toxicity it seems the messenger RNA is probably the bigger culprit because it's, it multiplies itself exponentially 
And that's a great point you bring up because in studies we've shown that that, that modified RNA will produce more spike than a, a natural infection itself. And, and to your, you know, your point is exactly um, correct, that lipid nanoparticle isn't going to replicate. But gosh, once that sequence gets in your cell, that's going to replicate. And it's going to replicate at high copy. And it's going to make high copies of that, to your point, I like the term bastardized spike protein. Yeah, and, yes. And, well, and, even a better term is a bastardized bioweapon. <laughs> because the original spike protein was a bioweapon. That's well documented, and now they made it worse and put it in your body. And put it in your body. And isn't it ironic that we took the sequence at face value from a laboratory in communist China that gave us the sequence, and then we right away said, oh, yeah, we can trust that communist lab in China, and we'll just use their sequence. No, we'll make it worse. <laughs> we'll make it to a cell. Let it stick around for a long time. And then we'll put it into everybody. And and. Uh, yeah, it makes no sense whatsoever. Oh, um, no, it does. It makes perfect sense if you understand their motivations. It's, yeah, it absolutely it's, makes sense. If you look at the bigger forces. It makes no sense if you're rational and you're committed Correct. to helping humanity. Correct. I fully agree, but that's not the case here. Yeah, no, there there are darker forces at work. That's, um, that's absolutely correct. No question about it if you understand reality. So I want to tail, tub tail back to the strokes because it doesn't get a lot of attention. But, I mean, you see the media campaigns to say, oh, heart detection strokes are normal in children. No, they're not. It's not normal. It's not normal in anyone if you're living the right type of life. Maybe some small case of genetic mutations that might predispose you, but it's mostly a reflection of, of, of poor lifestyle choices. But we've seen an explosion of this. And I just want you to, to walk us through that the cardiovascular complications, I mean, the, the vascular part, your vascular system goes into your brain and you're going to have a lot of problems with strokes and we see people die from. So if you can expand on that too, because it doesn't get as much attention, I think, as it should. Yeah, and, and this is a, a, another sad aspect of this spike protein. So, yes, it's tiny. Yes, it, it crosses the wall of those vessels in the brain. And so two th one of two things can happen. So you can either clot off vessels, and that's an ischemic stroke where part of your brain isn't getting enough oxygen. So, you know, this big, ugly, stringy clot, there's microclots that will form in those vessels of the brain that'll choke off circulation and then tissue doesn't get oxygen. Well, another thing happens as well, and this was more with the J&J, &J, and there's something called vaccine-induced thrombotic thrombocytopenia, where all of a sudden this VITT, so like you, you heard about this cavernous venous uh, clotting that wouldn't happen, so you have this one big area under the skull where you don't have valves. And so the blood slows down in these areas, it'll tend to clump. And now you've got a big clump of platelets um, making a big mass. You're, you start to consume your platelets to where they're all just form globs all over the body. Now you don't have platelets to stop from hemorrhaging into your other tissues. So that's another mechanism of stroke. One, you have that ischemic or oxygen starved stroke from a blockage. Another, you don't have enough platelets in your body that now your blood can just weep literally through the vessels and you have blood pouring into tissues. So the spike protein goes to the brain. The spike protein causes inflammation in the brain. 
the spike protein gets into the mitochondria in the cells of the brain, causes inflammation there. So in addition to the strokes, you also get this brain fog in many, many patients. And that's because you've induced inflammation in the neural tissues. So that's not a stroke per se, but you can get really severe like seizure disorders. I got a, a message from a colleague the other day saying, hey, how much epilepsy are we seeing? I have an F-16 pilot who's got his second shot and now has seizures permanently. Is, is uh, that, you think that's the mechanism for all these video testimonials we're seeing for people who are just shaking uncontrollably? I do. I think that spike, that spike because, again, that fatty membrane, your, your neural tissues are rich in fats and i know you talk about this healthy fats versus bad fats in our diet oh yeah it's a big big focus of mine recently because of neural tissue it is really fatty and so that charge on that lipid nanoparticle that's positive it loves fatty tissues and so it will hone to neural tissues and that was the one thing in that department of defense database one of the largest areas of injury before they took that database down was neurologic injury. And so they noticed, and again, I'm not going to quote the statistics because I know some of the statisticians that have recrunched some of the numbers and looked at it. It's a high percentage. I'll just put it that way. We know that the lipid likes to go to the brain. We know that S1 fragment of this spike likes to go to the brain. It is very inflammatory. It is very clotting. We know it inhibits respiration pathways. We know it ruins the signals from mitochondria. Great study out of Poland. Uh, uh, Dr. I want to say Clegg did that study. They, they looked at astrocytes, ependymal cells, oligodendrocytes. That spike got into all of them and it inhibited respiration to the degree that we see in a glioblastoma. So literally starving the neural tissues of oxygen to the degree that we see in brain cancers. So this is another one of these horrendous side effects of a very poorly chosen spike that is toxic to the cells and especially neurotoxic. And yes, it causes strokes. Kids don't get strokes. Maybe a sickle cell patient on occasion will get a stroke. I remember seeing that in medical school. But um, no, kids don't get strokes and heart attacks. And, and these high-performing <laughs> I'm sure what major media is saying. <laughs> oh, my gosh, I know. Well, and, and there's this mysterious thing in society causing all these heart attacks and strokes. Oh, really? I wonder what that could be. And, and it's a toxic spike protein from sure. consistent modified RNA that's yeah. being put into our bodies against our will through coercion that nobody on the planet needs another one of these shots, period. No, no, no. That's, that's the central message of this interview is that you cannot, if you've had someone or know someone who has, you cannot get another another booster. Or no. Anything. Just it's the last thing in the world you want. But getting back to the, the strokes, uh, the compli- neurological complications rather. So strokes are clearly one, but if you've got the microvascular clots, it would seem to me that would be another form uh, or another contributing factor to long, in the long term to dementia. Because, I mean, my, microvascular infarcts are clearly one of the causes of dementia. Very correct. Very correct. And, and choking off that tissue over time, you get what's called a lacuna infarct. And a lacuna is a tiny little lake. Mm-hmm. So you end up having one little clot block off, say, a little capillary region, but now you've killed all the brain cells in that region or this region or this region or this region. And so you do end up with early onset dementia. We've seen a fair amount of this. Uh, Dr. Seneff's work, she's pointed out that the the prion-like disease, that's the mad cow-like disease, 
That's what we call a spongiform encephalopathy, and that's a pattern we see under the microscope. So this spike can do all sorts of horrendous things. So yes, it can it can block off oxygen because of those microclots leading to dementia. Yes, it can get into the tissues, cause inflammation in and of itself. And that's why we actually, interestingly, uh, with the disease and after the shots, fluvoxamine was helpful in many patients as much as the FDA just wanted to prove it. And, and Steve Kirsch did a lot of the funding behind so it. What's, what's the mechanism? What's the mechanism? Uh, very, very simple. So um, it's, it's normally an SSRI um, antidepressant, well, it upregulates a receptor called sigma-1, which blocks another receptor called inositol-requiring enzyme number one, which is a precursor for cytokines. So fluvoxamine will block cytokine production in neural tissues. And that's why it's not because of an antidepressant anything. It's it's a cytokine precursor blocker. So you actually Mm -hmm. are decreasing a cytokine storm in neural tissues. And that's why... Does Steve know that? Steve does. Yeah, he and I have okay. had many conversations, and I've kind of gone through that mechanism with him, and and that's why it works. And that's, you know, this is the important thing is why one uses fluvoxamine. There's other SSRIs, but this mechanism is very specific to fluvoxamine. So some of these patients that are having this inflammation from the spike being present, um, it, it's, it's a tough to tolerate drug for some people. It makes some people anxious and agitated. But if you can tolerate yeah. it for two weeks, you can really tune down those inflammatory pathways in many patients. I'm not going to say everybody, but I've seen it work in many patients. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of drugs. And although it could work, I would use it as a last resort. Although I am a fan of methylene blue, as I mentioned earlier, the yes. first drug ever discovered initially a textile dye to, to color blue genes. But rapidly became used. And, and you also mentioned the, uh, the mitochondrial compositions. And yeah, I, I think the damage to the mitochondria and mitochondrial respiration is probably one of the leading contributors for fatigue. And, and I want to connect that because the methylene blue at about 15 to 20 milligrams a day uh, probably would go a massive long way to solving many of these issues. Uh, to me, anyone who's gotten it or suffering it, I mean, it's obviously the sooner the better, but for I mean, it's sort of a substitute for hyperbaric chamber, uh, which also produces improvements in those with acute strokes. But it, but it, it, the mechanism is really similar, that it, it, you radically increase the, the mitochondrial improvement of the mitochondrial respiration. Yeah, you're, you're literally helping bypass one of the steps in the electron transport chain with methylene right. blue. I mean, that's why even even in cyanide poisoning patients, you can bypass one of those. Oh, yeah. It's one of the it's a who, who approved drug. It's like in most emergency rooms. Yeah, and, and so that methylene blue to bypass the loss of respiration can help in that mitochondrial repair. Um, and, and to your point, I think hyperbaric oxygen is, is underutilized. So you add methylene blue plus hyperbaric oxygen therapy, I think you're going to help a lot. Of and there's one more addition to that uh, protocol. You know what it is? Uh, you'll have to remind me. Near-infrared light. Oh, yes, near-infrared Yeah, because oh. it also works on cytochrome 4, and it's magnificent. And it also increases melatonin yeah. in the mitochondria where you need it, so it decreases reactive oxygen. Yeah, intracellular uh, melatonin. That's yeah. one, one. Well, in, intracellular inside the mitochondria where you yeah, need it. because it's a phenomenal antioxidant within your cell, uh, that intracellular melatonin helping, it well, in, inhibiting um Breakdown right writer calls it subcellular. Yeah, yeah, and and it's you know 
one of the best ways to get it is get outside. Most people don't go. Oh outside. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you are spot on. <laughs> it's, and it's free. It's totally it's free, and it will penetrate eight centimeters into the skin. I mean, through through skin, through bone, through muscle into neural tissues even so get yeah. outside get that near infrared light during the proper hours of the day yeah. and if not get into a sauna where you can get near infrared light oh yeah you can do it well that is correct you're spot on but only less than five percent of saunas have near infrared light almost all True. the saunas in the u.s are far infrared right you need even to, those that claim to have full spectrum they really don't it's minuscule but but yeah. it's a sauna by sauna space that has Specially developed bulbs, because even most infrared bulbs that are used, heat lamp bulbs, they're about 14% near infrared. But he's got a bulb he developed as 40% near wow. infrared, which is like crazy. It's almost the same percentage as the sun. And you can get those. So I do those three or four, about four times a week. Wonderful. Near infrared sauna and the sun, and then a photobiomodulation panel. And I, I personally do uh, methylene blue about eight milligrams to 10 milligrams twice a day, because I think it's. Even when you're healthy, it's a great biomass. Yeah, outside it's, it's, it's virtually none. Virtually none. And and you know the one thing I do um, warn people on with methylene blue is it does have some monoamine oxidized effects. So if you are on an antidepressant or another drug, you need to make sure you're you're careful with methylene blue. Yeah, that's the that's the standard thought. But if you, if I interviewed Francisco Gonzalez Lemus, uh-huh. one of the methylene blue researchers at yeah. the University of uh, Texas in Austin, I think, and. Uh, he w- he really kind of debunked that and said it really is an issue. And he explained, I forget the details of I why. I think you that. have to have high, high dose, you know, 100 yeah. plus in order no, to get it. Still, I'd have to review the notes on it, but he wasn't concerned with it. But yeah. one, one thing he definitely was concerned is an absolute caution is a G6PD deficiency yes. when you shorten any DPH. So if you've got, it's very rare, but I actually know a few people who have it and they should not be taking methylene right at all. Well, isn't it amazing? I mean, it's three simple things that you, you just brought up. So yeah. hyperbaric oxygen, methylene blue, near-infrared light. Yeah. Two, two of those three are readily accessible. Hyperbaric. I have a hyperbaric at home. I use it probably four nights a week. Oh, uh, great. That's uh, a lot. Well, <laughs> I'll talk to you after that. I mean, okay. Yeah, I know I have to be careful with my, my uh, oxygen. And then there's some things you can do with respect to taking molecular hydrogen to make sure that you're not getting too much oxidative. Yeah, no, I, I do I do a low pressure. It's a soft soft chamber. Okay, okay. okay. 1.3. So then it's not as dangerous. Yeah, 1.3. I, I, I usually do a, a, a three atmosphere. But this is another point I wanted to bring up real quick in terms of uh, neural damage and neurologic symptoms. So the shots will downregulate some pattern receptors in our body, toll-like receptors. So the one thing in the laboratory I've been seeing quite a bit, and many of my colleagues have been seeing, because toll-like receptors 7 and 8 are downregulated by this modified RNA and this pseudouridine, we've seen a big uptick in herpes family viruses, especially uh, herpes HHV4, which is Epstein-Barr virus mononucleosis. So a lot of these fatigued patients, I would I would implore our medical colleagues, look, if you have a fatigued patient, yes, mitochondrial damage may be part of it. Mm-hmm. Some of these patients with MS-like symptoms, and we know about 80% of MS patients have high Epstein-Barr titers. Mm-hmm. Check an Epstein-Barr titer on these long-haul patients or these post uh, injection fatigue patients because you will find that a lot of these individuals will have reactivated mono. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a good good point. And there's several strategies I could recommend for that. One would be the nebulized peroxide, but also even increasing the dose of methylene blue if that wasn't. Effective. Yes, you can go to, to maybe 60, 80, 100 milligrams, depending on your body weight. 
I speak from personal experience. I had a sinus surgery three and a half years ago, straight into septum. Went ahead and broke my nose after it accidentally, but um, <laughs> but after my sinus surgery, I got reactivated Epstein Barr because it'll hang out in your lymphoid tissue, and it was in my adenoid. So I battled it personally on and off. So when when I talk to these vaccine injured patients, I'm like, look, I understand to a certain degree because I wax and wane in terms of you know MECFS personally from reactivated mono. So and I do all those things, you know, the methylene blue. I'll do the hyperbaric, and I'll have some very good weeks and then there are weeks I can't work the farm and I can barely lift wow. my microscope so I understand what people are going through from an empathetic personal point of view but but that's one I would implore doctors to look at look for reactivated mono because we've seen a lot of it mm-hmm. we know the shots and the spike protein will block toll-like receptors and allow mono to reawaken okay so uh, two more questions one is your views on the impact of this spike protein jab on uh, <laughs> the bastardized spike protein jab uh, on fertility and it, its potential really, I mean, some, it could be viewed in some circumstances as almost like an existential threat to the species because if you knock out fertility, it's, the fertility rates, oh, I was going to look it up a parameter, but, but it's radically decreased it, before the jabs. Correct. And then you add the jabs on top of it. It's a big problem. Yeah, we have all these estrogen mimics in our society already through plastics and benzones and sunscreen. Oh, and guess what's an estrogen inhibitor? You know what is an estrogen inhibitor? Is? Uh, zinc. Methylene blue. Methylene blue. Oh, methylene blue. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd heard that. Yeah, it, it could increase your testosterone by blocking some estrogen. So, yeah, to your point, yes, great question. I am, I am existentially concerned as well. We know the lipid nanoparticle does. Again, eggs are fatty. Ovarian tissue is fatty, just like that neural tissue. That lipid nanoparticle hones to the ovary. Think of how many women had menstrual irregularities after the shot and or even being around women that had had the shot and induced bleeding in those women that had not gotten the shot but were around women who had. We know it hones to the ovary. We know it was causing menorrhagia. We know it was causing menstrual disorder. So we know that it was going to the ovary in order to do that. University of Chicago did a study. They tried to get 5,000 women enrolled. They had 140,000 women in choir. So we know women are having ovarian problems. We know that the cycle uh, on in the average woman that's gotten a shot, they're bleeding one day longer on average. There was another study that showed that. It is dysregulating ovarian function. There's no doubt about it. We, if you go to the Department of Defense data that was frozen, there was already a signal for decreased fertility, both in men and women. So again, when that data, again, when we do the appropriate hearings on Congress, uh, when we have appropriate people that will actually look at this, hopefully, uh, when we see that data, anecdotally on the road, okay, again, I was in Florida, Santa Rosa Beach, talking to a large crowd, and this one couple came up and said, look, all my siblings are trying to get pregnant. All of them got the shots. They've been trying for six months to get pregnant. Nothing, 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 wow. nothing. So I hear it left and right now. I know the numbers in that DMED database prior to the freezing. They were very concerning. I know that well, the... What do you recall what they were? 
Yeah, I want to say 279%, but again, I know that um, 279% increase in visits for infertility. So it's not a 279 absolute increase, but it was visits for. Mm -hmm. uh, Three times. Yeah, and and there was already a strong signal for uh, fetal malformation as well. Mm -hmm. And that was... was, Even if you do get pregnant, it's going to be aborted. well, hopefully, but because otherwise, the, what I worry about is mutation. Because if you look oh, at that, yeah. like, well, the, like the thalidomide. Yeah, yeah. And here we are telling pregnant women, "Oh, get your shot, get your shot." When they didn't. Oh my gosh, they didn't. Oh, that, that is that's enough. That's almost as egregious as giving it to kids under five. I mean, you it give is. it to kids yet, yet unborn. I, I there is just absolutely no justification for that recommendation. I mean, it's just that that's a Nuremberg. Uh, of course it is of course it is and then the the amount of intrauterine fetal demise from this shot compared to all shots combined over the last 30 years is more than all shots combined over 30 years and then the first trimester spontaneous abortions the numbers are off the charts and i i don't know if you saw naomi wolf's uh, article people we have a genocide i think she's right oh yeah i just i interviewed her last week actually yeah she's great yeah, she's, she's a fireball lover, and but you know she's she's on the truth path. She's on the war path for truth because what we're doing to society and humanity with a previously never before used modality and product is causing horrendous harm to the human race with no regard for science, with no regard for scientific integrity, with no regard for. Uh, it, it's a machine gone amok. You know there are darker forces behind it. A lot of people are making billions, but they're killing people to do it. And it's it's just so unethical what we're experiencing societally. Yeah, we're causing infertility. Yeah, we're causing mutations and cancers. Yes, we're causing heart attacks and strokes. Yes, we're de- destroying the longevity of a younger generation. It is it is horrendous. There's no justification in any doctor that can look themselves in the mirror and say, oh, gosh, I feel comfortable giving this experimental product to my patients all day long. They they need to reflect and say they've lost their mind. It, it, well, they, well the, the, the reality is they have lost their mind. They're, they're almost maybe not lost, crit, literally lost their mind, but they've lost all their critical thinking skills. Critical thinking skills. They are hypnotized. Oh, they hundred percent. Matthias, I'm sure you know Matthias does, yeah. doesn't work. And you know this mass formation. He it, it consistently says is identical, not similar, identical to hypnosis. It is. They're hypnotized. So, they, 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 so what they're doing is is logical and rational and justified from their perspective because they're hypnotized. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully our job is to wake them up little by little with data uh, and information. Matthias isn't too hopeful about that, you know. I know. Even 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 those. I mean, if you look at the the totalitarian regimes like in Nazi Germany and Russia, I mean, even after they crumbled, the people who were hypnotized still remain hypnotized. Most of them. Well, and it took six years after you know there there were still hardcore members of the of the Nazi Party and the SS, and and our intelligence services went into Germany after the war. It really took six years to reverse that mindset. Um, yeah, so it doesn't come slow. It doesn't come quickly. So, and we have all have limited time, so it's probably best not to waste your time on those. Oh. Yeah, no, we could go down. That's a long rabbit hole. I, I do want to bring up something real quick with all this vaccine injury. Um, you had asked earlier who my main colleagues have been. Oh, yeah, that was one of the that's the final question. But before you answer that. OK, OK, let's get your information because you're one of the key people. I would include you in the top list. 
So where people, because here's the challenge. Almost everyone that's been, that's credible in this area has been deplatformed and discredited. Absolutely. Uh, and censored. So it's not easy to find them. You're not going to find them by putting in their name in Google search engine, unless you want to find out all of the bad things about it. You will not find what they're, they're talking about. So in, in that measure, I want you, you to provide us with how uh, someone could learn more about what you're doing and keep current on what you're finding. What's the best way to do that? Okay, the easiest way to reach me is the letter R as in Ryan, R Cole md.com rcolemd.com mm-hmm. and that's that's where i answer a lot of these questions and then in addition to that um, i can be found at globalcovidsummit.org we have a, a forum there and this is one of the points i wanted to bring up the vaccine injured uh, we have a blockchain based forum for the vaccine injured to where you can share your experience and story and it will never be taken down by the socials. You can't be deplatformed. So you have to type it in, otherwise Google will redirect you. But globalcovidsummit.org, go to the forum and there's a vaccine injured forum. And and that's, you know, I can be found there. And then we're, we're also starting up another um, website basically to counter a lot of these other platforms like WebMD that are PharmaBot and whatnot. And that's gonna be dmed.com and that's decentralizedmedicine.com. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I'll have a page on there as well. And and a lot of people can get information from people like, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Malone, me, um, Dr. Corey, Dr. Merrick, Dr. Urso, all these other thought leaders, um, Dr. Kirk Milhome, pediatric cardiologist, and his wife, Dr. Kim Milhome. Um, these have been some of the wonderful leaders in in this movement for for truth and sharing science. Dr. Paul Alexander, what a what a brilliant aggregator of data. Um, so all of us all of us are part of seventeen thousand medical doctors and medical scientists. Um, that's who leads this global COVID summit. It's not like is, is that the one? Did Robert Malone start that one? Yeah. So yeah, I was at the founding meeting. We were basically in, in a dark room with who, who are, like who are the founders. Who are the founders? You, Robert. Uh, yeah, so me, Dr. Malone, Dr. Urso, Dr. Brian Tyson, um, da, 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 Dr. Heather Gessling was there. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm embarrassingly gonna. Dr. Corey was there. Um, Dr. Merrick, Paul Merrick. Uh, Paul wasn't there at that one. Um, let's see. I'm leaving. Oh, Dr. John Littell out of Florida. Uh, he's up in Ocala. Excellent family doc who's been a, a warrior there in Florida for truth and, and legislation. He's a, a great fighter, great friend. Um, so that was that was kind of the basic group. I'm probably leaving one or two out. I apologize to my colleagues if I if I am. But it, but but we are 17,000 doctors strong and. And it's very important that people understand that. I mean, that's more doctors than they have at the CDC or the FDA or the NIH. That is a group of thinking, critical thinking, people standing up for your health, your freedom, and your right to your own bodily autonomy. That's great. All right, anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? No, just I think we need to remember to be kind to each oh, other. Oh, I know one thing. Hey, please don't get another booster. <laughs> no, okay, don't get another booster. Please don't. And and I think going forward, as as people are starting to wake up, and part of this narrative is cracking. Let's come back together. Let's communicate. Let's be kind. Let's let's help each other get back to more of a, a loving, peaceful, communicative society. I think that's. You know, if we can forgive, you know, obviously the things we don't want to forget because we don't want this to happen again. But, you know, try to forgive people and try to help people come to again. Just just 
come back together in community. I think the better community is, the better your immune health is, the lower the depression if we're back in community. I think it's important that we really try to, you know, circle the wagons again as humanity and hopefully come back to our senses. So that's a hopeful message I would like to share. That's a good message. I'd, I'd like to thank you for sharing that because I really believe that is the foundation. Uh, it is so easy to be angry and vicious at, at what at the, the egregious behavior and, and casualties that occurred as a result of that. But we're called to forgive and we're called to be in love. And, and if you're hating them, it's going to be a disaster. And in my interview with Matthias, he he shared a story that I thought was particularly interesting in that the, the people who survived the Holocaust, all the atrocities of the Holocaust, were the ones that held on to their humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that is, that's what we're called to do. We're called to be the light. We're called to forgive. And if you, if you fail to do that, it's not going to work well for you and for the society. So I, I totally applaud those the, and echo your, your recommendations. Thank you. All right. Well, people know where to find you now. And thank you for thank you for all you've done for putting your your livelihood on the line, essentially, and having a 50 percent reduction in your income as a result of sharing the truth. So we need more courageous leaders like you. Thank you, Dr. Merkel. What an honor to be with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.